If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's interesting where you can also feel the shift in a crowd. One minute it's all happy and joyful, and then there's something might something might a scream might occur or something, and you sort of you can suddenly feel that ripple of a free song runs through crowds. It's quite an interesting dynamic. That was Jacqueline Riding discussing the Peterloo massacre. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. In the next few days, the Mike Lee directed historical epic Peter Liu will be released into British cinemas. It depicts the massacre that took place during a demonstration in favour of democratic reform in Manchester almost 200 years ago. The events have also been chronicled in a new book by the historian Jacqueline Riding. And our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne, met up with her a little while back to find out more. So today on the podcast, I'm joined by the historian and author Jacqueline Riding, whose latest book, Peterloo, The Story of the Manchester Massacre, recounts how a peaceful protest in August 1819 eventually ended up in the death of 15 people and the injury of many hundreds more. Um, You've also acted, haven't you, as a historical consultant on the Mike Lee film, of course. Um, So for people who might not be familiar with the story of Peterloo, could you just start by telling us what exactly unfolded at St Peter's Field on the 16th of August 1819? It's actually straightforward in its essence and then becomes complicated once you start to dig deeper, as ever, with history. Um, but in essence, it was more or less what you've just said. It's, uh, it's the post-Waterloo period, so it's the post-war, Napoleonic War period. The nation is groaning under the strain of taxation and debt and want and famine and all sorts of things. Um, and this is sharpening people's um, uh, keenness in order to have some form of representation, in order to deal with the day-to-day issues that they have as, uh, as citizens of, of the United Kingdom. Uh, you should also know that during this period, a sizable chunk of the public, uh, general public, um, by which we mean, of course, in the voting public, we mean men, not women, had no vote in national parliament at all in parliamentary elections, Uh, So they had no say, no representation in Parliament. And so this was increasingly seen as the the aim was to to gain universal suffrage or an increase in suffrage amongst the male population in order for them to have representation in Parliament. But also, increasingly, it was seen that if the men had representation, then so did the families. So the very simple answer to the question is that the the, um, mass meeting on St Peter's Field was part of a programme 
throughout the 1819, the year 1819, to demonstrate the groundswell of support for parliamentary reform. There's lots of different ideas about how extended the franchise should be. But I think we can safely say amongst the radicals, of which Henry Hunt, for example, was a leading exponent exponent and, and a great orator on behalf of expanding it to full universal suffrage, male suffrage, um, this was seen as part of an agitation, a period of increasing and fast-paced agitation. So St Peter's Field was going to be part of the journey towards a monster meeting, as they described it, um, on Kennington Common in London, which would be the finale of this increasing demonstration of popular support across the country, not just in Lancashire, but everywhere, across the entire United Kingdom, for the, the, the full um, expansion to the universal suffrage. You mentioned there some of the grievances were to do with suffrage. What were some of the other um, things that were really grieving the working class population at this time? The One of the great sort of um, focal points of grievance was the Corn Laws, which artificially inflated the cost of, um, of foodstuffs like bread, uh, which is the staple diet of the working labouring class. At the same time, there was uh, an increase in rents because everything was pinching, <laughs> so it was a double whammy. And then when the war ended in Battle of Waterloo, it was thought that at least if the war ends, then they'll be with peace, there will come plenty. It seemed to be a sort of rallying cry, a sort of um, um, a phrase regularly used. But it didn't happen, didn't arrive. And in fact, things just got worse. So there was famines, there was a poor harvest, and that just added, it was just grief upon grief and, and, and horror upon horror. Um, which, traditionally speaking, you might say, and this is very broad terms, but traditionally speaking, you might expect the labouring class to start rioting, food riots and so on. But there had been a significant shift in the methods in which they were wanting to achieve the, the, the vote. And so there was this shift away from what was seen as traditional response of the labouring class, which was to riot or machine break or so on, to something very much more considered in pace with what we might call the middle class um, radicals and reformers like William Cobbett, who um, was increasingly being read by the labouring and working class, which just seemed to indicate and, and create a step change in how collectively the labouring working class were going to respond to their own situation. How widespread were these ideas and how popular were they of radicalism and reformism? I think it was very beguiling and it's, it's offered a different way of approaching you know, the, the, the issues of, of, of yourself and your family and so on. So I think, I, I mean, certainly William Cobbett was seen to be sufficiently, because he started producing his, um, what was seen as radical um, papers, his journals, in cheap form, precisely to target the, <laughs> the, the labouring and working man. Of course, even if you couldn't afford the two pence that this new publication was was charging, somebody could buy it and then read it to, to people in the taverns or within their, more increasingly, within their private homes or in what they called Hamden Club meetings, which were these affiliated clubs for reform, for the, for the reform of Parliament. So it, the ideas were being spread not only through people who could read it for themselves, but people who were listening to people reading it to them. And then there would be discussions and that's how the ideas spread very, very rapidly. But violence still hung around at the edges. Um, it was still there. And in many ways, the threat of violence 
is part of, still part of this highly constitutional uh, reform movement. But because the gathering together of 60,000 people, for example, on an open field in the middle of a town, um, poses you know, a degree of threat. And it was Henry Hunt and, and the other people who agreed with this, this method that he had very much sort of um, galvanised um, obviously felt that um, that it was it was part of the threat the part the fact that the threat was still there still lurked even though this was a peaceful demonstration um, was part of what made this this particular technique powerful the, the fear of what they might call the mob um, was was you know incredibly strong in this in this period so yes so focusing in on the day itself the events on St Peter's Field. Um, how did the day begin and how did events kind of unfold? What would it have been like um, to be there at the start of the day? Well, I think because it was part, as I say, of this sort of... Um, it's, there was actually a meeting on St Peter's Field in the January which sort of signalled the beginning of this two, you know, um, 1819 mass demonstration which was going to accelerate and grow and grow and become more thrilling on one hand frightening on the other hand, depending on your point of view, um, that St Petersfield, I think, would have been... Would, everyone would have seen what was going on elsewhere, even within Lancashire, or they would have heard of what's going on in the West Country or London or up in you know, Scotland. And they would have known that this, this rallying of the, of the labouring class, this sort of union of the people, um, was going on. And for Manchester, bear in mind, the population was probably about 120,000 in at the... At, the least, we, we tend to think that there's about 60,000 people standing in this one particular area of Manchester. That's a sizable chunk of the population plus people coming in from outside. So I think it's a combination of, you know, people who are necessarily not agreeing with the, this idea of these mass rallies and a bit frightened because property could be destroyed. You know, it's, it's happened before, it's happened since. Um, some people will be frightened of what's about to happen and in many ways would be justified in being frightened. On the other hand, if you're part of the group that's holding laurels, you know, and with children and marching with, you know, to the sound of hymns and um, little bands playing Handel or whatever it is, you know, this is a fabulous day out to some people. This is something different. It's not, you know, it's not the usual day, working day. Um, and then there's people who have been journeying towards this moment for the whole of their adult lives, you know, who feel that this might be finally the thing that that tips the balance, you know, the tipping point in the um, in this 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 great sort of journey towards a universal suffrage and parliamentary reform. So I think that you know, the basically the day is a combination of excitement and terror and everything in between. So how did violence and terror erupt? What seems to have happened is that because this didn't happen in London, where the authorities seem to be a bit more circumspect, a little bit more considered, a little bit sort of hands off, arrests are made at other political meetings, much bigger ones, or certainly bigger ones, but didn't seem to turn to, to you know, sabring of the crowd or, you know, or panic or anything like that. So you have to wonder why did it happen here and what's different is not so much the meeting and the scale of it or indeed what the people standing on the hustings like Henry Hunt were going to say because he was going to focus in this particular instance on universal suffrage which everybody knew was a, a core 
requirement and desire of the reform movement, of the radical reform movement. So what's different? And what's different is it's the, I'm afraid it's the local authorities um, and the individuals who are supporting um, the civil authorities, i.e. the yeomanry, the Manchester and Salford yeomanry, uh, yeomanry cavalry, who are under the direct um, sort of command of the magistrates. Um, and then you've also got the, the military about a thousand or so individuals from a variety of different regiments. Uh, what is different is the magistrates and it's also the local regiment, the, the yeomanry. Um, and what's interesting about what actually seems to happen is that there is a degree of encouragement to make some form of arrest quite early on in the proceedings um, through the fears that are expressed by some local citizens of some status and standing in Manchester. Um, see, certainly, in retrospect, at least, through the various trials that occur after um, the 16th of August, seems to um, be the aligning explanation as to why they called upon and then sent in the cavalry to disperse the crowd. The first people who came were the, the slightly more amateur, in fact, very much amateur, um, um, Manchester and Salford Germanry, who turned up and then started, didn't seem to be pretty orderly when they turned up onto the field, certainly weren't by the time they started entering the crowd, and then almost immediately there was some panic and shoving and, and, and so on occurred. Um, they then got stuck, they then went into another panic. In some ways the magistrates sort of blinked first, I suppose is the, is the thing. They, rather than for a riot to actually occur, they decided to send in the, the, the troops to arrest Henry Hunt. Um, and this um, then spiralled out of control, and they, in fact, lost control. So by the time the professional, you know, the regular army turns up, who are very much used to crowd control, not unlike the type of crowd control that the mounted police do now, there's certain techniques that they kind of use to uh, disperse a crowd, to, to walk the horses in an orderly fashion forward into a crowd who then start moving gently away. By the time they turned up, that technique was out the window because all hell had already broken loose. So you have a regular um, um, cavalry who are used to patrolling and, and controlling crowds in a situation where the control is completely broken down. So they are then sent in to rescue the yeomanry cavalry, um, and by which point it's just you know sixty thousand people running in different if they can move running in different directions. It's just chaos, absolute chaos. There's some quite shocking descriptions of violence in the book. Could you give us an idea of how bad things got? Or people were killed. <laughs> I mean, you, you've obviously been in a crowd. It's quite fun to start off with, but you start, even now, I check the doors, see where the exits are. You know, it's, it's you, you feel, it's interesting where you can also feel the shift in a crowd. One minute it's all happy and joyful, and then there's something might, something might, a scream might occur or something, and you sort of, you can suddenly feel that ripple of a free song runs through crowds. It's quite an interesting dynamic. Certainly Samuel Bamford, describes a weird moment where he says that it's almost like it was like a sea of people literally all moving together and there was this sort of sharp intake of breath and then they almost exhaled as one and it's almost as if it, it was like a spell and then there was this rush and I think it's as if they were well what we would call kettled I suppose they had they were so they were sort of stuck together and they had to move together because there was no moving individually so no one could get out 
of where they were in certain parts of the field. So that's the one thing. So people were being crushed within themselves because they were simply so tightly packed in together. In other areas, you got, um, you know, horses moving through crowds that there's nowhere for the crowd to go. So, you know, so you've got people being trampled by the horses. You've also got injuries sustained by the cavalry as well. There were even the, um, the constabulary, the kind of the special constables, uh, of which there was about sort of several hundreds of them, um, even they were starting to get sort of attacked or sort of accidentally hit by the cavalry as they were moving through. I mean, it was just, just chaos ensued. I mean, people describe um, clouds of dust rising up, which obscured what was going on even more so, so there was more confusion occurring. You've got people falling, being pushed against fences, you know, the old stairwells, the front wells of houses, arrangements like that where people are being pushed so hard against the fences that sort of the post that's holding up the fence is pulled down, let alone the fence. The entire lot tumbles down with a whole load of people on top into the, st into the, the well in front of houses. Then you'll hear people are going black because they, you know, they, they're suffocating. Uh, and I think at least one woman was pulled out of one of these particular incidents. Uh, a woman is pulled out from under a pile of people and she's dead. Um, you've got people dragging people in through the front doors of the various houses on the periphery of the field to try and save them. Um, there's a horrible pitch pinch point um, on the west side of the field where the, the roads narrow right down and people were trying to get through this tiny gap. Um, and they were being chased by or being sort of attacked by cavalry. So that was causing another sort of major problem with people piling up and not being able to get through or get away. I mean, it just, um, you know, it's difficult to imagine how horrible it must have been. And of course, it all happened so fast, relatively speaking. I, mean, I think we're talking about less than half an hour from the arrival of Henry Hunt to the attempt to arrest him to the, the chaos and carnage occurring. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's chaos. But the only way you can pick your way as a historian to describe it is, is, I think, is to use those little perspectives, those separate and different perspectives of different people sighted around the field itself. How should we see this chaos, though? Should we see it as the suppression of um, democratic forms of free speech or should we see it as a terrible, unfortunate accident in crowd control? In, in all likelihood... In my opinion, well, let's say Henry Hunt does his speech. He'd already done one in January, same place, smaller crowd. There's only about 10,000 people, so it's six times the amount of people there. But nonetheless, he's delivered a speech of a similar thing in front of a group. Um, so from their point of view, this should just rattle through exactly as it did. Slightly bigger crowd, a bit scarier for the magistrates. But, you know, if everyone holds their nerve, we'll do our, you know, we'll have our meeting and then we'll move on to Kennington Common and have a mass meeting and, you know, and so on. So they just see it, they don't see it as an end in itself, in a way, they see it as part of this sort of progress towards the union of, of people, you know, um, all wanting the reform of Parliament. So it's, it's, it wasn't an illegal meeting, it was a perfectly legal meeting. Um, nothing Henry Hunt was going to say um, was in any way going to be illegal or seditious. And in fact, he is very... Um, you know, he circulates pamphlets in advance saying, please don't turn up with anything other than courage and, and you know, re respectability and all this. You know, he's very clear about what he's expecting the people coming to behave, how to behave and what they're there for and what they're intending to do. 
So there's nothing undemocratic. It, it might seem a bit scary to those who are opposed to this, but, you know, if everyone holds their nerve, um, you'd think nothing would happen, or certainly based on past experience. And if there is a bit of trouble in the crowd, there's enough people around to take them off, you know, to sort of separate them off and, and deal with them separately, arrest them, or whatever you want to do. Um, he had done nothing to warrant an arrest. This is it. He had not said anything. He had barely cleared his throat. So you, I'm afraid you do have to pin this down to... The crowd control comes later. <laughs> you have to pin it down to that decision to bring in the military to arrest Hunt. For what, exactly? Well, they were anticipating trouble rather than responding to trouble that already existed. As far as... You know, I think that's pretty clear. What then happens is unfortunate because if the Hussars had turned up first, if um, Colonel Lestrange had actually arrived with his you know, regular troops, you would hope, bearing in mind the experience that they had, you know, these are men who actually fought at Waterloo. They're used to, you know, carnage and so on. Um, they're also experienced in crowd control, you know, and supporting the civil powers. You would hope that, in fact, they would have turned up. They would have done what they normally do, which is a show of strength, which is men on horseback, pretty scary, you know, with, with sabres. And they would have, you know, done the usual manoeuvre, which is walk gracefully into the crowd, nice and slowly, and the crowd would go, OK, it's time to go, and then they would all gently wander off. Um, and they would have dispersed the crowd, and nothing, nothing would have happened. The, the, unfortunately, the, um, it is, as I said, it's the, the yeomanry cavalry. A lot of people talk about the fact, because they were the local people, they, were, they came from local men, they also had local reasons for not liking the reformers, they might not even like particular individuals that they can see in the crowd. So there was a sort of local anim animosity, both within the crowd and within the yeomanry as well, so that could have helped. Um, a lot of people reported that some of the, the, these, the yeomanry cavalry turned up in, a, in drunk, basically, on horseback. They'd already, as they were coming towards the field, managed to run over uh, poor William Files. He was a two-year-old, so they'd already killed somebody en route, whether they realised it or not. So I think it all indicates that this is a very disorderly arrival on the field um, in a situation where order is, and the sense that you're in control, is absolutely vital. So it's a sort of string of mishaps, and but you have to, you have to say that the, the the instigation of what then happens afterwards must come from this this decision to to arrest Henry Hunt. So what were the consequences of Peterloo? Did it galvanise the call for reform? Did it scare people off the cause? And um, how was it viewed? Did, were people sympathetic towards um, those who lost their lives or were people saying, you know, well, they, they shouldn't have been out there in the first place? Certainly Archibald Prentice, who's um, um, obviously he was instrumental in the, in the formation of the uh, Relief Fund, but also um, the creation of the Manchester... Um, guardian, um, so, but he's a radical. Um, he he sensed that before St Peter's Field, before this happened, um, that the mob was the mob. That these working labouring class people, amongst the middling sort, the labouring class were just this sort of blob, this mob, um, and that reformers were, you know, that sort of um, they were opposed to reformers and reform and so on. Didn't get why um, these people should have a say in Parliament. Um, and he said that when, I suppose, when you start to put names to, to the people who had been killed or injured, and they were, of which there were hundreds injured, 
it turned the tide of public opinion within Manchester, Lancashire and indeed beyond because the relief fund spread to a kind of national raising of money to support the individuals. It humanised them, I suppose. It kind of, it, it brought in fellow feeling and empathy. Um, and that can only be a good thing. It's unfortunately, what happens in the context of the kind of national leadership, national and local leadership, is, of course, they're all arrested and then eventually they go to trial and eventually they go to prison. So the clampdown was pretty... Uh, you know, sort of um, finite. And then, of course, they brought in even more stringent acts and, uh, you know, parliamentary acts against the, the idea of sedition, the idea of mass meetings, I mean, the idea of marching and drilling, as they called it, um, which the reformers said was trying to create some sense of orderliness amongst the groups that were gathering and moving towards St Petersfield for this meeting, um, but was, was also characterised as a sort of you know, pseudo-military revolutionary movement on the part of the reformers that they were um, arming and then training through veterans um, of the British Army, um, you know, weavers and um, um, field hands and people like that, in order to become a sort of citizen regiments, but of course not to defend the constitution, but to tear it apart. So basically any way that had been used before to create or to, to have this, this ability to gather large numbers of people together in the way that Henry Hunt and, and his fellows in Manchester had done at St Peter's Field was just clamped down on. Um, by the same token, the, um, the reformers, people like Henry Hunt, thought they could fight the opposition in court so the various court, um, the trials that occurred, or the, the, the attempts to get people to trial for the murder of the 15 people, the injuries and so on, they decided that actually they were going to start using the law and the trials to highlight and eventually, you know, sort of um, condemn the magistrates, the yeomanry and uh, the military in the way that they responded. In a way, uh, that method didn't achieve and nobody ever came uh, was accused of um, uh, or successfully um, tried for for murder of anybody. Um, there were several attempts to do so, but it just didn't happen. But even though that might suggest an, a failure in the immediate short term, um, what Archibald Prentice says I think is very important that there was this this change of attitude. Um, and when you eventually get to, after much struggle, you get to the Great Reform Act and the 18, in 1832, Manchester at least finally gets its Member of Parliament, for example. So, so you can see it as part of a staging post en route to democracy. Um, I think the important thing was that it, it did create a shift in this fellow feeling, this, this idea that something needs to be done and that the form of Parliament is part of it, which, of course, before Peterloo wasn't more generally thought. Could you tell us a bit about um, what it's like to be a historical consultant on a major film? I worked on, with Mike on Mr Turner, so that was my first film that I worked with him. And I, having spoken to other people who work on films, and in fact having worked on other films myself, we all sent a script, um, working on a Mike Lee film is like no other film because there is no script. The script is sort of sealed, as it were, once on set, you've done the improvisations, you've done the research, etc. The um, the dialogue and the the action, the script is you know sealed as it were just before you shoot. 
So, um, so you're not sent anything that tells you what's going to happen from scene to scene. So it's all done in this organic, uh, uh, highly creative and collaborative way. Um, so perhaps, well, certainly unlike the other films I've worked on where you're sent a script and asked, you speak to the director and they ask you to look at certain things or there's certain gaps they'd like you to look at, what do children play with in this period, you know, that kind of little details that they can add in to visualise, you know, kind of add to the layering, period layering. Um, with with um, you know, with a Mike Lee film, you you're you're reading from scratch. You're reading books. You're visiting the National Archives to look at the actual letters and and the intelligence that was going to and fro between Manchester and and the Home Office. You know, you're talking to people. You know, the actors are all there as well, doing their own research and character development. It's it's much more intensive. It's much of a much longer duration. Um, and you're there from the get-go, so the moment you first pick up the first book on Peterloo and start reading it, right the way through to you know the final scene being shot on on set. And the for Peterloo, we were there much the same as Mr. Turner. We were on set for four months, and I'm, I was there the whole time. So you're there in rehearsal, and you're there um, for the shoot as well. So it's very intense, um, and you are absolutely part and parcel of the team producing the film very very embedded very immersed so it is I think it is very different from your usual historical advising role um, it makes you I hopefully it makes you um, really good when you get sent the script because you're very live to language because you're used to just hearing it and 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 making notes sitting and listening to actors improvise and then adding information in or helping to change it or making observations or, you know, so you're there as the dialogue is being sort of, you know, sort of created as, a, you know, from, from the get-go. So it's a very, it's a, it's, it's a very different experience. It's a really brilliant thing to witness as a historian because it, we are about descriptions and words and being, trying to be precise. And so it was a, it's another way of, of seeing history being, you know, it's history, but it's, it's, it's art as well. It's creative. Um, but it is history sort of at being animated in a very, very interesting and different way. And it certainly impacts on the way I now choose to write, how I like to write and how I like to describe things. So, yes, I've learned a huge amount from, from working on this. It must have been quite extraordinary to read all the material and then be there on the recreated St Petersfield with huge crowds and kind of see it all come to life. Yes, the first time a hussar strolls past you, you know, it's that kind of thing. Wow, we're, we're here, we're, we've finally arrived. Um, to see history being literally recreated, the sense of the actor through, you know, slightly sort of adapted and sort of um, um, piece of dialogue coming from an actual speech, for example, you know, to actually hear that being sort of, you know, animated and sort of, and become... As, as if this was the first time it was ever said or it's never been recorded, it's just someone speaking. And the language is so wonderful in this period. It's so sort of immersed in these fabulous, you know, sort of... Um, it's at times perhaps overwrought um, allegories and analogies and, and, and uh, very much steeped in biblical uh, references and, and uh, Milton and all sorts of stuff. It's just so wonderfully rich... But I really enjoyed the kind of political speeches and the kind of this 
um, you know, which which spring very much from from the language of the period, and and also sprinkled with some fabulous like my father's Lancastrian, so I can say it's with um, Lancastrian local dialect and some of the terminology and words and stuff were also sort of we had these fabulous encyclopedias of the Lancastrian dialect, and of course in this period you've got people who barely move from their village, so a, a walk, twenty mile walk to Manchester was quite a thing. But those individual villages and areas had their own little words and, you know, so we had to be slightly mindful of that. But thank God for antiquarians, 19th century antiquarians, you know, vicars with a bit of time on their hands who go around listening to local people speaking, you know, fairy stories and folk stories and um, the, the language that they used and making these little, these fabulous encyclopedias that actually, you know, to an extent help you to to try and construct a kind of, not only a Lancastrian accent, but also the dialect and the particular words that were used in these in these periods. You know, you sort of, um, you can't help but start to hear the actor speaking it, and then you sort of, then you also, I think, start to imagine the human being. I started to imagine Samuel Bamford himself, you know, sort of imagine him talking about his younger self, you know, through his autobiographies and so on. So you can't help but sort of animate it curiously in your own head. But why is the story of Peter Leo so timely and so important to have on our bookshelves and in our cinemas 200 years after the fact? To me, I think about the, um, I think it's interesting to see that sense of fellow feeling, you know, that, that it's about being human. It's about appreciating other people for being human rather than just, uh, as I say, the mob, part of a mob. They are, in fact, individuals who have lives and families and uh, and so on. And, and so the bigger issue of um, parliamentary representation is about people's lives. It's, it's that, that connection between what you might call the bigger history, the, the traditional history of warfare and politics and, and parliament and so on. And I think uh, Peter Liu brings you to the individuals that all this impacts on. And the fact that if they have no say, you know, to us it feels so straightforward. Give them the vote. <laughs> you know, but it wasn't straightforward in this period. Why? And I think part of it was this this lack of a sense of the human beings, of this, this as I say, fellow feeling. So, so... Yeah, I think it was the humanity of it and the fact that from the horror of it, humanity sprang from it. As, as I said with Prentice, Archibald Prentice, saying that people just, they started to think differently about these, these people who they might not, they step over in the street, let's say, or you know, who treat differently, who are being treated differently. They are now being perceived differently as a result of this tragedy. That was Jacqueline Riding. Peter Liu, The Story of the Manchester Massacre, is out now, published by Head of Zeus in the UK and Apollo in the US. The Peter Liu film is due to be released in UK cinemas in early November and in the US next spring. And listen out for an interview with director Mike Lee in a future episode of this podcast. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back in a few days' time with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. 
For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 